Thanks, Chris. Um, tonight is a great passage. Uh, you see, you've got an outline right there. If you want to divide that into three headings, uh, bad news, good news, and then implications for us. Bad news, good news, implications for us. If you want to leave some space at the bottom for questions, we're going to have question time after the service, because tonight, I think, is, is an amazing moment to, to look at the way God views us and to think through that. Um, so let's pray together as we come to God's Word now. Father God, we come to your word tonight from all sorts of different places. Some of us excited, some of us sad. Some of us working through all sorts of deep things that you know and maybe no one else does. We ask that tonight, that by your spirit, through your word, you would lift our eyes to what you want us to see. To see about your world, to see about ourselves. Might you, through your spirit, change us this evening. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we live in a world that tells us that how we view ourselves matters, right? Sometimes people have got such a, a low view of themselves, and that's so unhealthy. We have this view of ourselves that can creep into self-doubt and self-worry. Am I good enough? Am I ever going to make it? And we kind of psych ourselves out of life. It can be incredibly unhealthy and destructive because we don't value our lives. And for others of us, we have too high a view of ourselves, you know there's one in every lecture you've been in, right? They usually sit up the front. They always put their hand up and they've got questions and they, they think they're God's gift to the world and they want to ask all these questions just to show everyone else in the room that they probably know a little bit better than the lecturer. Have you ever been in a classroom where that happens? Any show of hands? Oh, have you ever been that person? That's no, okay, it's okay, okay. <laughs> but sometimes we do have too high a view of ourselves and we can get caught in this endless cycle of needing affirmation from others, of of imposing our view on others, of making the whole thing about us and what we are and showing others what we know. And that's just as unhealthy. And the world around us seems to answer the question of how do we view ourselves with the Goldilocks solution. Remember Goldilocks and the three bears? There was the three bowls of porridge. There was one that was too hot. There was another that was too cold. But there's one in the middle. You know, not too high a view of yourself, not too low a view of yourself. It's the just right view. And the world around us says we need to view ourselves in a healthy way, not, not too highly, not too lowly, somewhere in that Goldilocks zone. What God wants to show you and I tonight from His Word is to hold a Goldilocks view of ourselves that we're probably somewhere in the middle. Well, it makes sense in first in, in, inspection, is not true and is incredibly dangerous. To hold a view that I'm not too low or I'm not too high, somewhere in the middle, is not true of me or you. And it's incredibly dangerous. Imagine for a moment, yeah, you go to the doctor, you're pretty fit, you've been kind of going well, and you've got to go along and get a bit of a checkup. So you go along and you're thinking, you know, I'm not the healthiest person in the world. I'm not going to run 100 meters in under 10 seconds, you know, today. Maybe tomorrow I might stretch a bit more. But, you know, I'm, I'm not at that kind of level. But I'm also kind of not on dialysis, right? I'm not, I'm not dead or half dead. I'm going to go along to the doctor, get this checkup. Anyway, the doctor comes back after doing all the tests, sits you down and says, look, I've, I've got... Bad news and good news for you. Now, how do you respond to that? How, what do you do at that moment? Well, sometimes what the world is saying with our view of ourselves, we should, maybe we should just come along to the doctor and say, well, if there's good things and bad things, I'm just going to middle them out and go, I'm in the middle, sweet as. I don't want to know what they are. I'm just going to say, I've got to be somewhere here. I'm sort of in the middle. I'll average it out. I'll live in the Goldilocks zone. Thanks, doc. And you walk out, not hearing the bad news or the good news that's to come. If a doctor has a view of our health 
and there's something bad in it. In order to fix that, in order to move forward, in order to hear anything good about life, we need to listen to the reality of what the doctor says. Well, in the next chapter of Ephesians, Paul wants us to listen to the reality of what we are like. What we are like as humans, what we are like before God, and, and where we are at. He wants to hold a microscope up to your life and to mine and show us how God, the great physician, views our lives. And there's going to be bad news, point number one. And there's going to be good news. But let's start with the bad. We always want to end well, don't we? And that's where Paul starts. Ephesians 2, verse 1. You were dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you previously walked according to the ways of this world, according to the ruler of the power of the air, the spirit now at work in the disobedient. Glad you came to church tonight. Hey, welcome. You're dead. That's what God is saying. In our natural state, that is what we are like. Now, now the you here is actually speaking of, of the non-Jews. Whenever Paul talks about throughout Ephesians, you, he's talking about the non-Jews that are, are amongst them. And when he talks about us and we, he's talking about Jews. It's a helpful way to look through the whole book of Ephesians to see within this Christian gathering they're in, with the church Paul was writing to in Ephesus, there's also non-Jews who are there and, and Jews who are in the same gathering. And Paul is saying at the start that all the non-Jews that are there were dead. Now, every Jew in the room sits back and goes, tell me something I didn't know, Paul, right? Because they were gross. They were people that were into idols um, and they kind of ate meat. Oh, all the wrong, like pork. <laughs> well, I think bacon's awesome. Anyway, but that was wrong and abhorrent to God. And like, we know the Jews, the non-Jews have a problem, right? But then Paul just comes straight along in verse 3. Look really carefully. We too, Jews as well. All previously lived among them in our fleshly desires. It's like, oh, the Jew gets a bit like, oh yeah, what, what, what do you mean? We're God's chosen people. We're not like them. Paul's like, yes, you are. Yes, I am. Carrying out the inclinations of our flesh and thoughts. We were by nature children under wrath or children of wrath as the others were also. Jew and Gentile alike. Here... Without God, without God's work in their life, Paul describes as dead, children of wrath. The inclination of the Jews' hearts and the Gentiles' hearts were the same as that of the world around us. We kept going the ways of the world according to the ruler of the power of the air. You know that saying, you know, just go with your heart. If you've got that desire, just follow that desire. Paul's like, that's dumb. Because our flesh and thoughts and the inclination of them lead us to be people who are deserving of death and wrath. Now you hear that, right? And I go, I don't feel dead. I mean, have you tried that? Like, I'm pretty alive? You could, but I wouldn't suggest it. Turn to the person next to you and go, give them a slap. And I'm just, ow! Like, like we feel like we're... Like, easy, easy. <laughs> Security. <laughs> We don't have security. <laughs> That's awkward. <laughs> we look like we're alive, but God says we're dead without Him. Today's Mother's Day. Uh, I don't know if what you, you gave your mum. I bought my mum flowers. It's easy to do when you're in a different country. And so I rang up the flower shop or did it online and they, they sent it through and brought them through to her. She got this nice bunch of flowers. Have you ever reflected on flowers? You're giving people something that's dead. Like they look nice for about a week if you get good ones. The cheap ones you get from Countdown don't last as long. 
but um, same credit with, with my wife anyway, so I bring cheap ones, work really well. Sometimes I buy a picture, I just take a picture of the flowers and send it to Sarah, and because she was an accountant, she's real tight with money, um, she's like, oh, I feel loved. Like, I would have bought these for you, but they cost too much. Bang, send. I'm like, yeah, <laughs> so good. But, but every time you, you put a flower in a vase, it's dead. It, it, it's been cut off from its source of life. And what Paul is saying is Jew and Gentile, in other words, the whole world, every single human that has ever existed in our natural state before God is dead. Cut off from the source of life. We might not look dead. We're pretty young. Most people here, you know, we we don't look too dead yet. We haven't sagged and bagged everywhere yet. (laughs) But in our natural state, we're cut off from the source of life. We are all heading straight towards death, every single one of us. The natural state of every human being, Jew and non-Jew, the whole world, you and me, is cut off from God. What's the cause? Why? How did this happen? How do we get in this position? Well, Paul tells us it's something called sin. Now, sin is, is, is a concept, a big overarching concept here that Paul talks about because of the, our, our, our sin and transgressions. Sin is a, is a way that we, we treat God. It literally means to fall short. And what we do is we fall short from treating God as we ought. We run our lives our way without him. We think we're the boss. We put ourselves on the throne and say, look, I'm going to run my life without you, God. No offense. And sin came into the world when our first parents, Adam and Eve, rejected God and his rule. Paul said in Romans 5 verse 12, it's on the screen, just as sin entered the world through one man, Adam, and death through sin. You see that? You reject God. You reject the life source. Then death comes into the world. And in this way, death spread to all people because all sinned. This idea of sin is this orientation toward God. And if you go back to Genesis and Adam and Eve in the garden, you see that they're there in the garden. They see the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And God said, eat from any tree you want except that particular tree. But Eve went and she looked. She got closer and she was like, wow, it looks good to the eye. Smells good. And then this like snake that had legs and was talking came along, note to self, don't ever listen to talking snakes, and went, you won't really die? The ruler of the air was there. And he put doubt in her mind about who was in control, that God was for her good and Adam's good. And so she took it and ate some and gave it to her husband who was with her and said nothing. Note to guys, speak up. Far out. All the girls laughed, the guys didn't see that. (laughs) Speak up, guys, lead. And what Eve and Adam wanted to do, and Adam in leading this, is that they, be, they, they, be, they became ones who knew good and evil. It doesn't just mean I know what is good and evil. They became ones who determined good and evil. They had such an intimate relationship that they're the ones who set what is right and what is wrong. And from that moment, they stepped into God's shoes. Sin entered the world, rebellion against God. And every child of Adam and Eve from that point on, just like Adam and Eve, was cut off like a flower. They were booted from the Garden of Eden, no longer having access to the tree of eternal life. And every child who was born of of a parent from Adam and Eve, which is all of us, bar one in human history, (laughs) whose father was not from this earth, but all of us are born into the reality that we're at war with God. See, if you're born to parents who are in a terrorist group, you grow up with kind of camo bandanas and learning how to use AK-47s when, when, when you're three and like they've got real bullets in them. That's the reality. That's what you grow up in. And though you didn't necessarily choose it, you're a terrorist. That's the reality of, of, of life you're in. 
in the same way that if you were born in New Zealand, you're a citizen of New Zealand, you get to experience all of the blessings of that. One year of free education, free health care. Uh, you get to stay in this country as long as you want. You, know, you can even do really bad stuff and you can stay in this country. It might be in a cold prison, but you can still stay here, right? If we're happy to take the benefits of being citizens of New Zealand because of what our parents did, then we've got to take the curses of what our first parents, Adam and Eve, did as well. We're born as terrorists at war with God. Sin isn't just something that we're born into. Sin is something that we're willingly complicit in. Paul talks about here our trespasses. That means kind of crossing a line. It means that we've, in our relationship with God, we've not only been at war with God and trying to set the rules ourselves, we've actually done stuff that is wrong. Now, put up your hand right now if you have never, ever told a lie. Show of hands. Anyone here in the room that wants to stick up their hand and say, I've never told a lie. You can go for it. You can do your first one now. Go, put your hand up. <laughs> right, all of us at some point have said something that isn't true. There is the evidence that even though our parents are sinful and because we're born as terrorists towards God, we've all actively crossed the line. We've rejected the God who made us who says, speak the truth, the God of truth. I did not at any point in my life sit down with any of my four children and say, okay, now when you go to eat cake, make sure you go for the biggest piece first. Like, you've got to go for the big one. I, I didn't teach them that. I didn't do that. I modeled kind of letting others go before me. But naturally, as they come out of the womb, they go like, ah, I want to put my face in cake. That's what they do. <laughs> That's what we do, isn't it? We love putting ourselves at the center of the world and pleasing ourselves rather than God. We think we know best. You hear that when you get to parts of the Bible that you don't agree with. You're like, ah, oh God, you must be wrong at this point. I just want to help shape you into a better view of yourself than you have. I just want to help you out there. It's just as evil, just as wrong. No, you and I have turned our backs on God and, and, and crossed the line. And the image that Paul uses for you and I in our natural state before God, our, our spiritual state is dead. Now, in the Old Testament, um, God made clear a kind of picture of what his people Israel were like using this same image. It was a familiar image. If you go to the book of Ezekiel, it's on the screen, but we're going to read through part of Ezekiel 37 in the Valley of the Dry Bones and show you the way God spoke of the spiritual state of Israel. Let's read with me. This is Ezekiel speaking. The hand of the Lord was on me and he brought me out by his spirit, set me down in the middle of the valley and it was full of bones. It's like, it's like a vision that he has in front of you. He led me all around them. There are a great many of them on the surface of the valley and they were very dry. And he said to me, son of man, can these bones live? He replied, as all good people do, Lord God, only you know. <laughs> like, eh, I'm looking at, uh, generally I would say no, but it is you talking and you know, dead bones. But uh, yeah, Lord, you know. He said to me, prophesy concerning these bones. And say to them, dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. This is what the Lord God says to these bones. I will cause breath to enter you and you will live. I will put tendons on you, make flesh grow on you and cover you with skin. I will put breath in you so that you come to life. Then you will know that I am Yahweh. I am the Lord. I am God. So I prophesied as I've been commanded. While I was prophesying, there's this noise, a rattling sound, and bones came together, bone to bone. I looked, tendons appeared on the flesh, and flesh grew, and skin covered them, but there was no breath in them. He said to me, prophesy the breath, prophesy, son of man, say to it, this is what the Lord God says, breathe, come from the four winds, and breathe into these slain so they may live. So I prophesied as he commanded me. The breath entered them, and they came to life, and stood on their feet, a vast army. 
Then he said to me, son of man, these bones are the whole house of Israel. Look at how we say our bones are dried up and our hope is perished. We're cut off. Therefore, I prophesy and say to Israel, this is what the Lord God says. I'm going to open your graves and bring you up from them, my people, and lead you into the land of Israel. You will know that I am the Lord, my people, when I open your graves and bring you up from them. I will put my spirit in you and you will live and I will settle you in your own land. And you'll know that I am the Lord. I have spoken and I will do this. This is the declaration of the Lord. What a picture. A picture that God was pointing forward to the day when Jesus would come, the one who is the Son of Man, and he would die in our place and rise again. A picture of what Israel were like without God and the one who came to bring life. Paul says, you and I in our natural state walk according to the ways of this world, according to the ruler of the power of the air, that Satan is in control of of what is going on in our world around us and it's taking us on a current that's going a very different direction. According to the Spirit now working in the disobedient, that, that Satan is working with, with, with pulling us away from God. And that we are dead because of that. We're dead in the way that we live. I was thinking, how can I kind of illustrate this helpfully? I mean, Ezekiel's been so helpful in kind of seeing this picture of, of, of dry bones. And I'm like, I, I thought what I'd try and do is to go and get, um, get a skeleton. Now, um, a human skeleton... What do you medical people call that? A cadaver? Is that right? It's a bit gross, so don't freak out. Um, sadly, a rabbit died recently, and I thought about digging him up, uh, but I thought that was, that was pretty gross. And so I thought, what, how can I help us today? And so I, um, I went earlier and got something that will really help understand the spiritual condition that we're in. It's not a glove, but I need it. Are you guys freaked out yet? I stepped away because it smells. He said that we are dead. Now, this fish, oh, I want to slap it, but my hand will smell. Hello? It's dead. There's, there's nothing here that's happening. It, 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 can't, it can't kind of flap its little finny, finny things and go, come alive, and then jump back from... I mean, real honest question here. Does anyone think that this fish is going to come alive tonight? Show of hands. Oh, you have little faith. Look at you. <laughs> it really is dead. Like, there's, there's nothing left in it. And what Paul is saying is that our spiritual state before God is like this fish dead. How do you think this fish would go if I drop it in the water right now? In and of itself, will it be able to swim against the current of the world? Against the current of all that's happening? Let's try it. Okay. Hello. Do you think... No, I won't say that. I'm just going to leave that there and see how we go tonight. And see that if in any way that fish might become alive by its own way of thinking, by anything that it does, can it come alive? When I got it from the fish shop this afternoon, it's pretty fresh. It smells a bit fishy. <laughs> uh, 
they went to, to, to kind of take all the scales off it and to gut it. I'm like, no, 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 I, I, I want it like that. They're like, looking at me. Uh, and I'm like, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and in my head I went, it might come alive. <laughs> I didn't say that to them because I think they'd just go, you are insane. <laughs> if you throw a dead person in the river, do you think they're going to wake up and swim upstream? Do you think they've got anything in and of them that they'll be able to go against the current of the ruler of this world? What Paul is saying is that you and I, because we're parents of Adam and Eve, because we sin ourselves, we've rejected God, we've been cut off from life, we are dead. We cannot reach out to God. Our future is His wrath. Our natural state is is leading to spiritual death. We are children of wrath. Hebrews 9.27 says that man is destined to die once and after that face judgment. This fish can't reach itself out and go, come alive and do that. It's dead. I mean, it can't do anything. And that is what God is saying. Every single person in their natural state in this entire world is like, we can do nothing. I'm happy you came to church tonight. That's the reality where we're at with God. And that's the bad news. But God doesn't leave us with bad news. He didn't leave us for dead. Verse 4 starts with two words that literally make my heart jump. But God, while we were dead in our sins and the trespasses of our flesh, God, who is rich in mercy, in not giving us what we do deserve, because of His great love that He had for us, made those who trust in Him, made those that He chose before all of time that He talked about in Ephesians 1, He made those who were in the church that He's speaking to, who He made trust in Jesus, made us alive in Christ. The death is not our end. Even though we were dead in trespasses, Jew and Gentile together, you are saved by grace. Some of us think highly of ourselves. We think we're pretty good people, you know, or maybe not pretty good, but we're not murderers. And so God kind of looks down on us and goes, you know, that one there, that, I could probably bring that back to life a little. Some of us maybe try and fake it till we make it. And we need to be brought down to realize at this moment... <laughs> It had nothing to do with you or me. There is nothing intrinsically good about you or me. Nothing we could do. We are dead. I just want to slap it, but it's going to make me stink. Others of us think too lowly of ourselves. We're like, man, I've done so many things wrong. I'm doing so many things wrong in my life right now. You know, it's, it's too much for God. God can't reach down and help me. I am too far gone for God. And we get caught in this cycle of going over and over and over what we've done in the past or what we're doing in the present. It might be you tonight. And God, by His Spirit, is going, yes, this is me. We keep repeating the same sin over and over, and we think we're so far from God, too far from God. But I want to put it to you, that's actually another way of thinking too highly of yourself. Do you think it's possible for you to be so far from God that the one who spoke and creation came into being, that the one who spoke and made dead bones have flesh and brings back those who have cut God off to life can't bring back you? That he's like, whoa, everyone else was fine, but you're that little bit too far. No. God is so powerful. He is so loving. He is so merciful for those that he has chosen. He chooses to pour out his love on them. He does not give us what we do deserve. When he came to us, he came to us like this, dead fish. That stinks. (laughs) I hate fish. (laughs) All day I've not been able to get this stench off me. 
There's the second fish. See what happened to the other one? It looks so bad now. (laughs) What Paul is saying is that the God of the universe, in his great mercy, stepped in and from outside of us, not because of anything we could do, personally, individually, corporately, we could not remove ourselves from that situation. That fish ain't going to wake up. Neither are you or I from the dead unless God steps in. But what we can't do, God did. Why did he do that? Why would God come and take people who wanted nothing to do with him, who had nothing good in and of themselves? Why would he make us alive and go to that effort? Why did Jesus come and die in our place? Well, so often we begin to think, well, he did that because he loves us so much, because I'm so lovable, because there's something good about me that he's like, oh, yeah, that one's nearly not dead. I'll go to that one. Nothing to do with that. He did it because of what Paul's been saying so far in the book of Ephesians, and we saw it last week. Did you see it? Why did he give us every spiritual blessing in Christ? Why did he choose us before the beginning of the world? Why? For the praise of his glory, for the praise of his glory, for the praise of his glory. God does this so that the world around might be amazed at how loving he is, of what he does with dead schmucks like you and me. Look, listen to what Paul says in Ephesians 3. I don't want to steal too much from the coming weeks, but in 3 verse 10 he says, This is so that God's multifaceted wisdom may now be made known through the church to the rulers and authorities in the heavens. God does it so that the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms, whoever they are in this spiritual realm, and yes, there's more than just the physical, might see that he is God over all. Might stand back and go, wow, God, you are good. He does it so that he might be glorified. You made those people who were dead, who had nothing in and of themselves, alive. You gave them life. You pulled them back together. And now they serve you and love you because of nothing they have done. You are amazing. You know, it'd be like a coach that came along to the Warriors and saw them win a premiership. <laughs> That's right. You laugh because it's not going to happen. You got them to win a premiership. Sorry, kind of Warriors supporter there. But they never have. It'd be like, wow, what an amazing coach. You got those people to work together. There's no room for arrogance to say, look, God made me alive. Dead fish. Oh, look, look at you know, how close I was to being a follower of Jesus and, and, and God, God's lucky to have me on the team. Dead fish. Oh, you know, I've, I've worked hard to be a good person and I kind of reached out to God when I was dead and I couldn't move and my heart didn't beat and I couldn't speak because I was dead, but I somehow reached out to him, but I cut dead fish. God loved us because he loved us because he loved us with absolutely nothing to do with my efforts or what I am like. Now, that concept is so foreign to us. You don't really find it anywhere else in the universe. We generally love people or things because of their intrinsic qualities. Like, who loves chocolate just because they love chocolate just because they love chocolate? No one. You love chocolate because it tastes great. It gives me great pleasure. And it's like, wow, this is amazing, this, this chocolate that we have, or, or the people that we date, or, or, or the subjects that we, we enjoy. We love them because there's something good in it for us. This really struck me the other day. We've recently decided as a family to take the step of getting a dog. Hey, hey, hey. Yeah, that's not what we said. But our kids have been like little terrorists about it. 
They've been like, we really, can we get a dog, Dad? And can we get a dog? And Amy's so cute and she's 10. And like, I'll look after And she wrote this big list of all the things that she'll do. We know she won't be able to do it. She's like, I'll, I'll feed it. I'll pick up its poo. I'll train it. I'll get up at the night when it whines. She was like, I oh, just so much. And we've been thinking it'd be helpful. And, you know, and so we've been thinking through this idea of a dog. So finally, Sarah and I, we went, okay, we're going to do it. I'm a, bit, I'm a bit scared. But last Thursday on my day off, we went for a drive to this breeder's place and they had a number of puppies that were there and we went along to choose our puppy. It's only six weeks old, right? And there were three girls that we were choosing from and we're like, wow, and I'm standing there going, okay, which one are we going to choose? And as I'm standing thinking about that, I'm like, okay, so what I want to see is the temperament of each one because I want to make sure I get a good one, not a dud one. I want its training to be halfway there, right? And some of them look kind of really cute. And, there's some, and I was like, oh. then I'm like, what does the mother look like? I want to make sure it's from, are they healthy? Is everything going over? Can I go pat the mother and see where they're like? And she was a bit protective. And, and so I'm making this decision going based on how much, how good they will be. I mean, and you look at it. Here's a picture of the one we chose, right? That is not what God thinks of you. No, I'm serious. Dead fish. See, he loves us not because we're cute, because we've got a nice little nose, because of our breeding lines, because of anything good we have done. He chose to love us because he chose to love us because he chose to love us. It has nothing to do with us. Nothing. In Romans 9, Paul explains this concept. When he talks about God choosing um, the people of Israel and why he chose the people of Israel and, and who would be the recipients of his promise, look at Romans 9 verse 9. It's not the children by physical descent who are God's children, but the children of the promise are considered to be the offspring. Rebekah conceived children through one man, our father Isaac. For though her sons, who were twins, had not been born yet or done anything good or bad, so they're in the womb, so that God's purpose, according to election, might stand. In other words, so that God could say, I chose because of nothing to do with them at all before they were even born, not from works, but so the one who, but from the one who calls, she was told the older will serve the younger. As it is written, I have loved Jacob. This is God speaking at this point. But I've hated Esau. Now you read that and you go, whoa, it's a bit dark. He hated Esau. What is that fair? What would have been fair is if God sent all of us to hell, because all of us have been cut off by our own actions against him. We've said, we don't, no offense, God, but we, we want to be God ourselves. All of us deserve death, judgment, and hell. It's what Hebrews um, Hebrews talks about is coming for those who've rejected him. If we want God to be fair, we should all die. But because God wanted to show his love and his glory to the rulers and the authorities and the heavenly realms, to the rest of the world about how great he is, before either of these two kids were born, he chose one, not the other. Jacob was saved by grace, by the free gift of God, not because of anything he'd done. And, and Paul makes it so, so clear. As we come to the storyline of the Bible, there are kind of two ways to think about what God is doing through human history. One is that he wants to take these people who stuffed up his creation and bring them back into relationship with himself. And finally, God is praised because people are in right relationship with God and he cares for us. It's about us. There's a sense there where he so, so does that. For God so loved the world, he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him will not perish but have eternal life, says John. It is about God loving us. But that's not the end of what he's doing. Now, the whole story of the Bible, if you look at what the Bible actually says, is about God being glorified. About God's actions showing that he is good. 
You did that with them, with Israel, with the people that were no nation at all. You took those dead sinners and you made them alive. You carried them and now they follow you and trust you. The story of the Bible is about God being glorified. That includes him bringing us from death to life. This week on the uni campus, we've had an O-Week stall. We've been asking people, what makes you fulfilled in life? Or how fulfilled in life are you? The general answer we were getting was somewhere around seven. I think we, oh, it's just generally what we say to most questions. You know, about seven out of ten. You know, not too much, not too little. Goldilocks zone, maybe. Kind of happening there. But generally, people are saying, we're, we're around about seven in fulfilled in life. And ask the question, what will make me fulfilled in life? Will we be getting things? Will we be achieving all the things I want? My experience has been when you get the things you want, you still want more. You want more money, more time. We will only be fulfilled when we realize what our purpose is. And our purpose is to praise our maker. It's to live for his glory. It's for him to work through us and take us from death to life so the world around might go, how amazing are you? It also might be for God to send those who reject him to hell and and the world around go, wow, he is also just. Because in all of it, it's about God's glory. That raises the question for us, for me, but what if I'm not chosen? Am I stuck in this world? Jesus has died, but has he died for me? Am I like, I can't get in because God hasn't chosen me? Well, the Bible never talks about that. The Bible talks about the way God draws people to himself, the way he sees the dead fish come alive is by sharing the news of Jesus, by pointing people to who he is by drawing them to himself, by him speaking his, his word by his spirit and seeing us come to him. From our point of view, it looks like we are trusting him, that we are reaching out towards God, but we can only do that if God reveals himself to us first because we are dead. If you're here tonight and you don't yet trust in Jesus, can I encourage you? In him is life that lasts forever. Without him is death. God's judgment for what we have done. That's the diagnosis from the doctor. That we are dead without him. I want to encourage you to come and, and, and trust him. Come to him calling you tonight and put your life in his hands and experience life and the freedom that it brings. And experience even more good news. Look at what else Paul says in verse 6. Not only did he make us alive, but he raised us up with him. And seated us, that's those who've trusted in Jesus, those who God drew to himself, seated us with him in the heavens in Christ Jesus. Now this view here of the heavens, that's not heaven, it's not the, the, the new creation. New creation will be on earth when, when Jesus comes back and we meet him in the clouds and come back to the new earth and we're, we're physically there. This is talking about where Jesus is bodily now, at God's right hand in the heavens. It's this place that is kind of waiting. Now where is that? I don't think it's a physical place. It's in the spiritual realm. There's a whole heap of questions there. I'm like, eh, I don't know. They don't tell us. But Paul says that if you trust in Jesus, that if God has made you alive and drawn you to, your, to, to himself, then right now you are, are seated spiritually in the heavenly realms with Christ Jesus. I want you to imagine for a moment a table filled with food. And at that table, at the head of the table, is Jesus. He's there in his, his glorified body, physically human flesh. And as the camera pans back, the table goes on for kilometers and kilometers and kilometers. And there is people sitting at that table, seated in the heavenly realms right now. Can you, can you picture that? They're so secure because God has drawn them to himself to prove to the rulers and authorities that he'll keep them to the end. Their security is 100%. 
And they're there going, wow, these people are with Christ. And the camera pans back and sees you who trust in Jesus sitting at the table with him. You are seated right now if you trust in him in the heavenly realms with Christ Jesus. You were dead. You did nothing to get there, but God has drawn you to himself and given you life. And as these rulers and authorities stand back and see what God is like, who he has brought to the table, as they see the work he does in us and and, and through us, as he sees us come and accept his offer of forgiveness and cooperate with the God who reaches out and make us alive, they are amazed. And that makes God look good. We spend so much time making our houses look good, our resumes look good, our bodies look good, our careers look good, our intellect look good. We try and polish up our our reputation and, and do these things in our life to say, look at what I've achieved when we're seated in the heavenly realms with Christ Jesus now. What could be greater than that? What am I spending all this time going, look at what I've done on earth, look at what I've achieved done nothing, but God has seated me in the heavenly realms and then will come back again and bring me into right relationship with him physically forever in the new creation. I did zip, nothing, nada. Yet God did it for me. Why does God tell us that we're seated in the heavenly realms right now? Have you ever thought that? Why, why is he showing us this? I think because it's so easy to miss the grandeur of where we are seated right now if we trust in him. But I also think it's so we don't rob God of the very purpose Jesus died. What was that purpose? It wasn't primarily our good. Verse 7. So that in the coming ages, God might display to who? The rulers and authorities, to those on the earth, the immeasurable riches of his grace through his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. First and foremost, it's not about you, nor is it about me. It's about God displaying his glory and he's lavishing on us because he chose to love us, because he loved us, because of nothing to do with me. And if we say that I did anything, there was a moment where I reached out what God had offered me and accepted that of my own volition before God came to me, we're robbing God of his glory. We're saying he wasn't quite as kind as if he'd done it all. There was something about me that was like, ah, this one's a little bit better than the other. That one had a really cute face. I'll pick that one. And we're robbing God of his glory, of, of his immeasurable riches. We're making him a little less, a little more measurable. He needed a little less of it. God shows us where we are seated and our purpose in his cosmic plan. So we won't think it's about us, not first and foremost. And in that is phenomenal freedom. Because I don't need to work in order to achieve my place. I'm not a dead person going, how am I going to get out of here? Because God has done it for me. Great freedom and great comfort because he's going to hold me to the end because his glory is on the line, not just what I do. Life is just so full of doing. Everything around us is do, do, do. Do you find that? (laughs) Do you find that? You know, I've got to do this. I've got to clean this up. I've got to make sure the dishes are done. I've got to fill in the right forms. I've got to do what the boss says or what the shareholder wants or keep the staff happy or the the lecturers happy or the family happy or the kids happy or my spouse happy or my flatmates happy. They want me to do this other stuff. It's so annoying. Don't you find that? I'm sick of doing stuff. Everything in our world is based on my performance and what I do. And so there's no, no, no surprise that we think we can, we've got to do the same for God. But the only thing we can do before God is get ourselves a ticket to hell. And we do that quite well. 
We reject the true and living God. That's our nature. That's our action. But along comes God. Jesus dies in our place and he says three words. It is finished. It's finished. It's nothing that you can do to qualify you. But I've done it for you. I've reached out and taken the dead fish and made you alive. God's amazing love because he loves us because he loves us. He makes dead people live. This is amazing, isn't it? So Paul says in verse 8, You are saved by grace, by God's undeserved gift, through faith. And this is not from yourselves. And and this is talking about the, the grace and faith together, probably the whole picture. This is God's gift. The fact that we've trusted what God has done is a gift. Jesus' faithfulness on our behalf is a gift. God's gift bringing us back from death is a gift, not by works so that no one can boast. You know what that means for the way that we live now? Humility. There's not one person in this room that can look at another person and say, I can't believe you did that. I can't believe that you're such an ugly sinner. You look so dead to me. Because we're the same. We've not contributed anything. We get this this great humility that comes at the foot of the cross. Nor is there one person that we can look down and go, ah, or can look down on us. So often I find myself frustrated at how people behave. Sometimes it's me. Sometimes others and I think, oh, how could you do that? Just this week, I found myself incredibly frustrated at some decisions that that some people made that significantly hurt me and and Sarah. And they were a while ago, but they came up again. And I found myself going, those people, they are just wretched and wrong. I can't believe they do that. What is going on with them? And I got to this passage and it slapped me in the face like a wet fish. I'm dead. I'm the same. You surprised that there's sinners around? Because so are you. And so are you. And yet God reached out to us because of nothing we have done and brought us back to him. When I claim that I've done something to achieve my salvation, I rob God of his glory. It's got incredible implications for the way that we live in the world, doesn't it? There's no way I can be better than the other person. There's no way I should be comparing with others. It frees me to say sorry Knowing that my salvation, my performance, what I view myself, how I view myself, it doesn't depend on how good I am because I'm I'm a dead fish. I'm dead to God. I'm cut off. I can say, yes, I suck. Yes, I did that. And I don't need to go, no, but I'm going to hold on to it because my reputation matters. It means I'm free to forgive as well, knowing that they are just as sinful as I am. If right now you're failing to forgive someone and, oh, I know it hurts. I know it's hard. Then we have not understood what Christ has done for us. Sometimes that hurt runs so deep, but freedom comes from looking to God's work in us. We were dead. We've now been seated in the heavenly realms. Can I really stand and say, but I'm not going to forgive you for that? (laughs) Who do you need to go and forgive today? Where's God's spirit prompting you to say, stop looking at that person in that way? Who do you need to go and say sorry to today? And and, and own the fact that you've done something wrong and just be honest about it because your identity doesn't demand or depend anymore on what you do, but on what God has done for you. There's this great freedom that comes. 
I heard the story a number of years ago of uh, a man who was convicted of, of th- I think it was murder, true story, it was in London. And he was convicted of murder, went to jail, spent time in jail, uh, came out and became a Christian in jail. God reached in and drew him to himself. He joined a local church and you wouldn't believe it, but the local church he joined also had the judge that put him in jail in it. One of the first Sundays, they did uh, Lord's Supper and they would go up the front to the communion rail and the convicted criminal was right next to the judge, taking the Lord's Supper together, knees bent, trusting what Jesus had done for them. After the service, the, uh, the minister went up to the, um, the judge and said, did you see who was next to you? He said, I did. And the judge said, isn't God's miracle of grace amazing? And the minister said, yeah, you know, to bring him from where he was to where he's at. And the judge said, oh, I was talking about me. See, the judge got the fact that he was just as bad, that before God, he'd done the same thing, that he was an ugly sinner as well. The judge got it. Do you? Paul says that the ground at the foot of the cross is incredibly flat. And that gives us great freedom to do this last step. And it's short, so bear with me. Paul says this, understanding how bad we are and what God has done for us, how how good that is. He says, for we are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared ahead of time for us to do. When the dead are made alive through nothing we've done, it brings phenomenal freedom to say, man, I'm now free to serve. I'm free to do this stuff, to, to try and, and live for God in every area because my, my performance doesn't depend on me, but I've been raised to life already. It's incredible freedom. Imagine that. Imagine knowing that you'd passed every exam and you could learn. Now, I'm still a sinner, right? And I guess he's so are you. And I'd be like, sweet, I'm not going to do any exams if I pass them all. I'm just going to go over here. But when we see what God has done, that Jesus died for us, we see that he is the king and it draws us to want to live for him. The word here, God's workmanship, is literally God's kind of poetry. We are God's poetry. He's saying, look at what I have done and how I'm working through these people that brings me glory. We get to live now bringing God glory using the skills and the gifts and the abilities that he's given us using the hurts and the habits and our brokenness that he's given us to say, guys, I don't have it together, but look at what Jesus has done for me. Friends, sometimes those of us who recognize what Christ has done for us, we're amazed at the gospel. We get through this and we go, yes, I'm saved, but we stand on the sidelines clapping and miss out on participating in glorifying God. Is that you? you're sitting on the sidelines going, no, God can't use me. Well, I don't really want to do that. You've moved from death to life. And Paul says, God has works prepared for you to do, to glorify him, to live for him. You get to be involved with all your brokenness in the way God has made you and to see him glorified. Have you for too long been standing on the sidelines of the glory of God? holding back from sharing the ugly truth of who you are and where he's brought you from and how God has called you and how amazing he is. Do you always filter your speech and not speak of the glory of the one who's taken you from death to life? Do you hold back on serving, on your time? Because you think that there's something here and now you get swept into the current of this world. God has freed us. He has brought us from death to life so we might serve him, not in order to be saved, 
but because we get this amazing privilege of being part of his poetry, of helping the world around and the rulers in the, in, in, in the heavenly realms say, man, God is good. He took someone like Rowan, like you, and worked through us to bring people from death to life. Friends, as we come to God's word, we see his view of us is that our sin is darker than we could ever imagine. But God is more merciful and more loving than we could ever, ever dream of. So don't sell yourself short of reveling in the glorious freedom of saying, I've been saved by everything that Jesus has done and nothing to do with me. And so I'm going to serve him with my life. Let's pray. Father God, there's a sense where tonight, as we see your view of us, for all of us, really, it's offensive because we hate being told that we don't have things done rightly, that we are not right. We're also so thankful that you've shown us the reality of where we're at and the reality of what you've done for those who trust in you. And we pray tonight for those that are here, that you are drawing to yourself, that you would bring them to know you and love you. We pray for us that do trust you, that you'd help fix our eyes on what Jesus has done so that we might live not on the sidelines of your glory, but using the skills and gifts and abilities you've given us so that others might see how amazing you are, so the rulers and authorities might see how amazing you are. Father, captivate us this night by what you've done for us in Jesus, that you've made us alive and seated us in the heavenly realms. May that reality shape the way we live for your glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You've been listening to a sermon recording from Auckland EV. We hope you found it helpful. And if you'd like to find out more about Jesus or about church, we'd love to get in touch. So check out our website at aucklandev.co.nz for more details. Thanks for listening.